Father in heaven, we do thank you for the book of Ezekiel and its many prophecies. We thank you that you worked with this man. We thank you for his faithful service to you, despite the unpopular message that he was proclaiming, as many of your prophets did. We thank you for their faithfulness. We thank you for encouraging them and helping them. We ask that you would help us to better understand their message in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, and of course that was a name that was often used for Ezekiel too, the Son of Man. The name Ezekiel, or in Hebrew, Yehezkel, means God strengthens. And God certainly did strengthen Ezekiel in carrying out his task. And he also promises that he will strengthen Israel. Yet in the future, I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. According to Ezekiel 1.1, the priest, Ezekiel the priest, authored the book that bears his name. Ezekiel was, was the son of Buzi and came from a priestly family. His wife, the desire of his eyes, was taken from him suddenly while in exile in Babylon. We don't know if they had any children. Ezekiel began his ministry in the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's exile in uh, 593 BC, which is when he began to write his book, probably finishing it sometime in 571 BC. Ezekiel's prophetic ministry began with a dramatic vision near the Kevar River near Babylon. The Kevar River wasn't actually a, a natural river, it was a, an irrigation canal. It took water out of the Euphrates River and then the water was, came back into the Euphrates River further on, on downstream. But it was an irrigation canal. His spectacular and strange visions of God's glory were further enhanced by his bizarre performances that accompanied them. On different occasions, at God's behest, he shaved his head and beard, he played army, and he lay on one side in public for months. These things were done to help his audience understand the concept he was trying to convey. Pastors today often use uh, stories. They tell stories to illustrate uh, points in their message. But Ezekiel and the other prophets did, did it a little bit differently. They often used props and symbolic actions to give object lessons. That's how they illustrated their messages. The <clears throat> okay. The uh, itinerary, the, the outline of the book. First, there is God's denunciation of Judah. And there we see the departure of God's glory. That's what we'll cover tonight, those first 24 chapters. <coughs> and then in the second half of the book, there's God's visitation on the nations, the preparation for glory. Once the pagan heathen nations are taken out of the way, then God can bless Israel, exalt Israel. And finally, God's restoration of Israel in the latter part of the book, the return of God's glory. And of course, they won't be fully restored until the time of the millennial kingdom in the future. 
gospel, the right scarlet thread of redemption is found in Ezekiel 36, where God made a three-tiered promise to Israel that they would be regathered to their land, that their hearts would be regenerated spiritually, and that his kingdom would be reestablished among them. The establishment of Israel as a nation in 1948 was only a preview of what will be fulfilled at Jesus' second coming when he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. Jesus is our great high priest who gave himself as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. Under this new covenant, his blood regenerates us spiritually, cleansing us of sin and making us new creations. This covenant is foreshadowed in Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. In the Jewish rites of purification, the priest would sprinkle lamb's blood on on the dwelling places, uh, the vessels used for worship, and on the people themselves in order to cleanse them. Ezekiel's use of a sprinkle predicted the priestly work the Messiah would do in cleansing the nation of Israel through his own suffering on the cross. Israel lost its temple, its means to atone for sin, not long after Jesus walked the earth. But here in Ezekiel, God promised to provide atonement for them. Isaiah used similar language when he prophesied that God's servant, Jesus, would sprinkle many nations. This foretold the great truth that salvation isn't just for the Jews, but for the whole world. The history is is quite an important part of the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar with the second wave of Jewish captives in 597 BC. So his writing closely followed Daniel's, who was taken captive with the first wave of captives in 605 BC. Jeremiah, who had been prophesying for more than 30 years by the time Ezekiel began his ministry, was left in Jerusalem when it fell in 536, 586 BC. All, all three prophets, Daniel and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, all three prophets foretold the impending doom of Judah, the need for Jews to return to God, and God's plans to make that possible. <coughs> the um, historical background, as I said, is, is important to understanding Ezekiel and his message. Ezekiel was born just a year or so before the law book was discovered in the temple as part of Josiah's reforms back in 621 BC. That's around the time that Ezekiel was born when that book of the law was discovered and Josiah began his reforms. And as the son of a priest, he no doubt witnessed the consequences of Josiah's piety and the royal support of the temple and the worship of Yahweh in Judah. As a young child, he saw how that improved conditions in the country and brought them closer to the Lord. The prophet would also, when he had been a boy, uh, through the period when Assyria's power continued to decline, he no doubt hoped that as a young man, as a young man, he hoped that the failing fortunes of Assyria might mean freedom from foreign domination for Judah. But of course, once Assyria passed from the scene, then Babylon arose, a new threat. <coughs> he would have known of the ominous rise of Babylon in Egypt as they too escaped the yoke of Assyria. 
So when Assyria began to decline, then of course uh, Babylon and Egypt rose to fill the vacuum. When he was barely a teenager, he would have heard the news of Josiah's death at Megiddo while seeking to block the advance of Pharaoh Necho in 609 BC. So Pharaoh Necho from Egypt was going up to fight the Babylonians and Josiah went out there to face him. And the Pharaoh tried to tell him, no, this isn't your fight. I'm going to fight the Babylonians. You don't need to get involved. But Josiah wouldn't listen and he was killed in that battle with the Egyptians. Ezekiel had probably heard the preaching of Jeremiah and may have known the ministries of Habakkuk and Zephaniah. He witnessed the period of political instability and vacillation following Josiah's death when Judah's fortune shifted with her allegiance to Egypt and then to Babylon in turn. We're trying to pick the winner and go with them. But of course, humanly, that's not always possible, is it? After Josiah's death, Pharaoh Necho deposed his successor, Jehoahaz, after a reign of only three months and installed Jehoiakim as an Egyptian puppet. So after Josiah's death, the next king was Jehoahaz, but the Pharaoh took him out of there and installed a, a king that was more to his liking. So he put Jehoiakim on the throne. Then when Egypt was defeated at Carchemish in 604, Jehoiakim shifted his alliance to Nebuchadnezzar, only later to rebel against Babylon and align himself with Egypt once again. So it occurred to him that uh, Babylon was more powerful than Egypt, so he went with, with Babylon, but then he later shifted back to Egypt. Jehoiakim died and left his son Jehoiakim to face the fury of a Babylonian reprisal. So Jehoiakim had switched back to Egypt. That, of course, didn't make the Babylonians happy. And so they came against Judah. But, of course, by that time, Jehoiakim was dead, and his son, Jehoiakim, had to face the fury of the Babylonian reprisal. Jehoiakim was dethroned and taken into captivity in 597 with the royal household and the leading citizens of Judah, including Ezekiel. So that's when Ezekiel went into captivity, along with the king Jehoiakim in 597 BC. And later on, we'll see that uh, events in the book of Ezekiel are, are dated according to when they were after this important event of, of Jehoiakim being taken into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar placed Zedekiah on the throne. That was the king he wanted in Jehoiakim's place. And although Zedekiah would preside over Judah until the destruction of Jerusalem in 586, the exiles continued to regard Jehoiakim as the legitimate king. So even though Zedekiah was sitting on the throne, the, the exiles still considered Jehoiakim the real king. Ezekiel lived with his wife in a community of Judean exiles along a large irrigation canal, the river Kevar, 
near Nippur in southern Mesopotamia. From this vantage, deep in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, Ezekiel proclaimed the word of God concerning the rise of the Babylonian Empire to its zenith and the corresponding falling fortunes of his own nation and the surrounding peoples. It was only after the destruction of Jerusalem that the prophet turned his preaching, turned to preaching dominated by the themes of hope, restoration, mercy, and grace for Israel. So up to that point, he'd been warning about uh, the coming destruction of Babylon, that Babylon would bring upon Judah. But once the destruction occurred, then he turned his, his focus to more positive things. No other prophetic book contains as many dated oracles as Ezekiel. Date, uh, Ezekiel gives dates for, for many things in his book. Verse 1-1 one, one refers to the 30th year. And that means the 30th year of Ezekiel. He was 30 years old. Ezekiel was 30 years old when he began to receive visions. The significance of 30 is that when a man was 30 years old, that's when he could begin functioning as a priest, when he was 30 years old. And Ezekiel, coming from a priest, priestly family, would have been a priest, but he was taken into captivity. So, so he never had an opportunity to, to serve as a priest in the temple. And that is why, as you read the book of Ezekiel, you'll see that Ezekiel is constantly very much focused on the temple and the holiness of the temple and the restoration of the temple yet in the future, millennial kingdom. That's why, because he was to be a priest, but he was never allowed to, to function as one. So that, that first verse, that the date that's given there, the 30th year, <coughs> refers to the age of Ezekiel. But all other dated events are given in relation to the number of years since King Jehoiakim's exile in 597 BC. All of the other dates that are given. And there are a lot of them. Over and over again, Ezekiel will say, well, well I, I received this vision, or, or this happened in my life on, in, in this year, and this month, and this, on this day. So he's very specific about those things. Chronological records from both the Bible and from extra-biblical documents, along with astronomical observations recorded by ancient scribes, in other words, eclipses, when there were eclipses, the, the scribes would note that. Those things enable us to correlate the ancient and modern calendars with a high degree of confidence. So we can be pretty sure about uh, how these dates correspond to dates that we would understand. So here I just put together a, a chart on the next three slides. Over to the left, I give the reference in the, in the book of Ezekiel. And then in the second column, I, I noted the, the year and the month and the day that, that Ezekiel gave us. 
So in, the, in verse 1, it's talking, it says the 30th year, the fourth month, the fifth day. That's talking about the 30th year of Ezekiel. And then all of the, all of the dates after that are given in terms of the year, the month, and the day from, from Jehoiakim's exile. So in verse 2 there, chapter 1, it's in the fifth year. Um, and then over, over in the third column, I, I've shown how sc scholars have converted those dates into dates that have meaning to us. So that first date is July 31st in the year 593 BC. Um, and then the third one there, it's in September, uh, September 17th of 592 BC. So uh, Ezekiel kept very accurate account of, of when he had these visions, and and then down there in uh, row four, you'll see the elders came to inquire. He, he noted what date that was. And then <coughs> the siege of Jerusalem began in uh, January, January 15th, 588. But the city was under siege for quite a while because it didn't fall until the summer of 586. And then he also gave the dates for the oracles against the surrounding pagan nations, against Tyre and Egypt, and the, the oracles against Pharaoh and Egypt. Uh, and then, uh, remember, Jerusalem fell in the, in the summer of 586, but in, on January 8th of 585, that's when an escapee from Jerusalem arrived to tell the to tell the exiles that this had happened. And finally, Ezekiel even gives us the date for when he received this vision about the coming millennial kingdom, the vision of a restored Jerusalem. What can we learn from the book of Ezekiel? Well, we learn that God equips those whom he calls. Ezekiel had a tough message to deliver and a lot of physical challenges that went with it. Like many of the prophets, he was proclaiming a message that wasn't popular. And the only explanation for how Ezekiel was able to persevere th throughout his ministry is that God's spirit empowered him. God is still perfectly holy, but we no longer have to go through a, a complicated series of rituals and sacrifices to get to him. The blood of Jesus Christ saves us and gives us access to his presence. And we are now God's temple on earth. God is holy. The Jewish temple played a crucial role, crucial part in Ezekiel's prophecies, adding to the sorrow of the people's exile and the joy of their return, since the temple provided their only access to God. For New Testament believers, the temple is a reminder of who God is and all that he has done and will do for his people. Jesus calls all believers to be watchmen. In the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, Watch you therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. Not only should you be aware of the events in the world that Jesus said would be precursors of the end times, you should also be about his business in the meantime, whatever that may look like in your daily life.
the themes in Ezekiel. There are several important themes. The holiness and transcendence of God. You see that right away in the first chapter when Ezekiel has this amazing, awesome vision of the throne of God and the cherubim and so forth, and the wheels within wheels. This awe-inspiring experience that began Ezekiel's ministry. We learn about the grace and mercy of God, the grace and mercy that he extended to Israel, to Judah, because even though they had sinned and rebelled against God, he was grace, grace, grateful and merciful to them. <coughs> uh, next is the sovereignty of God and the individual responsibility. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about those latter two. God rules over the affairs of and destiny, not only of Israel, but also of all of other nations. The nations did his bidding. They did what God had foretold that they would do. The words that God spoke through his prophet would be performed. The book is pervasively concerned with demonstrating the truthfulness of the prophet's words. The phrase, you will know, or they will know, that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. You will know that I am the Lord. Or its equivalent occurs with great frequency in the book of Ezekiel. Look at all these verses where it says, they will know, or you will know that I am the Lord. When I predict this, when I prophesy that this will happen, and it comes to pass, then you will know that I am the Lord. It is often called the recognition formula. When this happens, you'll know that it was of God. God would vindicate himself and his prophet by fulfilling the word spoken by Ezekiel. <coughs> the next one is individual responsibility. And this is something that in our culture, in our society, we think, well, of course, that's just the normal natural thing. Each individual is responsible for his or her own actions. But in the Bible, it's not quite that simple. The exiles like to quote a, pro a popular proverb that suggested that they were unfairly suffering the consequences of their father's sins. The Lord objected, pointing out that he holds each individual accountable for his own sin. The Lord illustrated the point with a series of case studies dealing with hypothetical situations. He talked about a righteous man whose son is wicked, and he talked about a wicked man whose son is righteous, and he talked about how each person would be responsible for his own actions. That seems to make perfect sense to us, but how do we reconcile this passage, which emphasizes individual accountability, accountability with the many texts that illustrate the principle of corporate responsibility. Individual responsibility versus corporate responsibility. The Lord warned his enemies that their sin would have negative consequences for their family throughout their lifetime. We see that in Exodus and Numbers. And here's something that's even more perplexing for some people, Dathan's, Abiram's, Achan's, innocent children 
died with their sinful parents. We read about that in, in Numbers and Joshua. <coughs> and David, with the Lord's approval, he didn't just take it upon himself, he had the Lord's approval to do this, he allowed the Gibeonites to execute Saul's seven sons because of their father's crimes against that city. Not for something that they had done, but for what their father had done. The Lord also took the lives of four of David's sons because of his sin against Uriah. Remember, the, the first child of Bathsheba died. And of course, David had great uh, strife within his family. Uh, you remember Amnon's lust for Tamar, and then um, the other son, Absalom, murdered him, and then later on, Absalom was killed. So uh, I, I forget the, the, who the, third one, the fourth one was, but anyway, there were four of, of David's sons that because of his sin, against Uriah were killed. The solution is to hold both principles in balance. Both are true, and neither should be elevated to universal status so that the other is canceled out. Children do experience the effects of a parent's sin. God even punishes children for a parent's sin on occasions where he deems such a punishment is fitting. However, this is not always the case. Often, as in the case of the exilic generation in Ezekiel's day, the children are given the opportunity to obey or disobey the Lord. In such cases, they can be assured that God will evaluate them on the basis of their own deeds, not those of their parents. Ultimately, the two conceptions function in a complementary rather than a contradictory fashion. There are many visions that Ezekiel had. In the first chapter, right away, there's that vision of the, of the cherubim that surround God's throne. And the remarkable image that he has, the vision he has of, of God's throne. Um, in, in chapters 8 through 11, there's an extended vision that he had of the glory and godlessness of Israel, of Judah. Um, he also had a, a vision in chapter 15 of, of a burning vine. In other words, the, the branches associated with the vine were burned up. And then in chapter 37, we have the vision of the dry bones. That's in chapter 37, so I'll, I'll talk about that next week. Uh, the first vision. In this vision, four living creatures appear, having unusual faces. They have the, the four faces, the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, the face of an eagle, but each with the general appearance of a man. They have arms and legs and so forth. The main purpose of the vision is twofold, to commission Ezekiel for service and the need to impress upon him the need for assimilating the words God spoke to him and giving them to the people. Note the role of the book, which he ate in his vision. There are many similarities between Ezekiel and Revelation later on. Remember that, that John, the Apostle John, uh, eats the book in, the book in his Revelation. 
the role of the book, which he ate in his vision, the unswerving obedience to God's will of the creatures symbolized the obedience expected of Israel, uh, of Ezekiel. So those four creatures, those cherubim, they did exactly what God wanted them to do, and that's what Ezekiel was to do. He was to, to carry out his instructions exactly the way God gave them to him. Their movement as a single unit is the picture of God's will perfectly executed. Ezekiel and Revelation are often alike in symbolism. The man upon the throne is the son of God. The bow that is in the cloud spoke of the, the covenant God made with Noah. The fire bespoke God's spirit. In Revelation, all these appear. Christ figures prominently in all the, all the symbolism. Before the siege of Jerusalem, Ezekiel is given an extended vision which shows the people's abominations in defiling the sanctuary. Remember that, that Ezekiel isn't actually in Israel, in Judah, in Jerusalem. He's in Babylon, but he's taken in vision and shown the disgraceful conditions in Jerusalem in the temple. He's shown how they are defiling the sanctuary and how that contrasts so starkly with the glory of God. Abominations occur all the way through the section. Glory stands in sharp contrast. God was trying to, sh to uh, show why Israel was being led, was to be led into captivity. The vision of the burning vine. The vine becomes a symbol of Judah. And the burning of useless vine branches when the vine bears, no, vine bears no fruit, is the destruction of the people who profess to follow God, but refuse to do so. The abominations of Jerusalem are so great as to warrant the most severe punishment. Jesus used the same imagery in the New Testament of the vine and the, the worthless branches. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that bears no fruit, he takes away. If a man does not abide in me, he is cast forth as a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So Jesus used a, a similar image as Ezekiel did. The vision of, this vision of doom is followed by the parable of the unfaithful wife. Israel was Yahweh's bride, who had forsaken God to go whoring after other gods. The love of idols rather than the love of God caused Israel's downfall. In addition to the visions, there are parables and signs. The parable of the two eagles reveals the king of Babylon and the king of Egypt. The highest branch of the cedar corresponds to Jehoiakim, carried captive off to Babylon. The seed of the land was Zedekiah. The tender twig Yahweh will plant is the Messiah, the future king of David's line, through whom all nations will learn to know God. Jeremiah also tells of this highest branch as do uh, Isaiah and Zechariah. For the mountain of the Lord, we can see uh, 
Micah and Isaiah, they both talk about the mountain of the Lord being the exaltation of God's government above all others. Chapters 20 through 23 include several parables, prominent among which is that of two sisters, Ahola and Aholava. They represent Israel's and Judah's deterioration into idolatry. So those, those two sisters are symbolic of Israel and Judah. The parable of the boiling cauldron, chapter 24, symbolizes the Holocaust in Jerusalem at the hands of the invading Babylonians. Much fuel, hot fire, boiled flesh, and burnt bones show the intensity of the siege. Two sticks. We'll read about this in connection with the, with the vision of the dry bones next week. With these two sticks, one representing Judah, the other representing Israel, are shown as ultimately reunited under the shepherd king of God's people, Christ. The uh, three sections of Ezekiel can be thought of in, in relation to the fall of Jerusalem. The first 24 chapters are predictions, prophecies before the siege of Jerusalem, prophecies against Judah. The second section, chapters 25 through 32, are predictions during the siege of Jerusalem. They are judgments against Judah's enemies, the surrounding pagan nations. And then predictions after the siege of Jerusalem. This is the section prophesying the restoration of Judah. And of course, the ultimate restoration in the millennial kingdom. But another way to think of these same three sections is in relation to God's glory. And that's the, the way I gave it to you in the itinerary, the outline I gave you then. God's denunciation of Judah in the first 24 chapters, and there we read about the departure of God's glory, God's glory departing from the temple of Jerusalem. The chapters 25 through 32 are about God's visitation on the nations, the preparation for glory. So once the pagan, heathen nations are taken out of the way, then we can see God's restoration of Israel, the return of God's glory. So that's another way to think of the three sections of Ezekiel. So we'll quickly go through the first 24 chapters here. Ezekiel's call to the prophetic ministry came through a staggering vision of the glory of God. Summarizing the vision, he said, Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the one, the voice of one speaking. It's always interesting to me how whenever someone has an encounter with God in the Bible, they are just blown away as we put it on our modern vernacular. They just they fall on their faces. They're, they're stricken with fear. And so when, when people today tell us that they had uh, you know, a casual conversation with God, it, it doesn't... Uh, 
but it doesn't sound very realistic. The voice commissioned Ezekiel, son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who rebelled against me. Chapter 2. The venture of Ezekiel was difficult. God warned that the people would not listen to him. But if Ezekiel did not warn them of their sins, then, then he said, God, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Chapter 3. So Ezekiel couldn't say to God, well, they're not going to listen to me, so why should I, why should I tell them? Well, God said, you have to tell them. If you don't tell them, you will be punished. Then Ezekiel saw the glory of God arise from its place, and he said, I went in bitterness in the heat of my spirit, the hand of the Lord being strong upon me. Once again, remember that Ezekiel was in captivity in Babylon, but he was taken in vision to see what was happening in Jerusalem. And God's glory was departing. When Ezekiel began his ministry, 593 B.C., Jerusalem had not yet fallen, 586 B.C. His first commission was to declare the imminence of her doom. The nearness of God's judgment, chapters 4 through 7. Ezekiel was commanded to make a brick replica of Jerusalem and dramatize how it would be besieged. Remember what I told you about props and, and symbolic actions and um, object lessons. Well, this was to be an object lesson. He made a, uh, a model, a Jerusalem model of clay, to, to demonstrate what, what was going to happen, that Jerusalem was going to be besieged. Then God told him to lie on his side for over a year, symbolizing the times of judgment on Israel and Judah. He was going to lie on his left side for 390 days and on his right side for, for, for 40 days. So the 390 days were to represent the judgment of Israel and the 40 days were to represent um, the judgment of Judah. Each of those days, the 390 and the 40, were to, to symbolize a year. So 390 days represents 390 years, 40 days represents 40 years. Now, the idea of which years those were, the 390 and the 40, is a rather complex discussion. So I'm decided not to go into that deeply uh, tonight, this evening, but I do have a, a file on it in, uh, on my laptop that you can look at afterwards, and if you're really interested, I can send it to you, a discussion of, of what, what years are represented by these 390 and 40. We don't know exactly how Ezekiel did this, but he probably didn't lie on his side for a whole... You know, 390 days and then the other side for 40 days. He probably just lay on his side for certain hours of every day during those periods of time. Whenever he was lying down, he had to lie on his side. Um, 
an interesting feature of this fourth chapter of, of Ezekiel is that it gives us a bread recipe. In chapter 4, verse 9, Ezekiel is told that what he's supposed to eat during these 390 days. And you take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and spelt, and put them into a single vessel and make bread of them during the number of days that you lie upon your side, 390 days, you shall eat it. So Ezekiel is told by God what he should eat <coughs> during these 390 days. Now there's actually a company that, that makes bread according to this recipe. By this recipe, they make Ezekiel 4.9 bread. They, they, uh, they make a, a loaf of bread and they also make a cereal using that recipe. And they make uh, uh, pocket bread using that recipe, which is probably more what, what was really eaten by Ezekiel, you know, round, flat bread. But anyway, some have argued that Ezekiel 4.9 provides the recipe for the bread that is ideal for sustaining us, as it sustained Ezekiel for more than a year. But that's not really the point of the verse in, in its context at all. Uh, what we see is that Ezekiel's food was to be by weight, to symbolize rationing during the time of siege, as the explanation in verses 16 and 17 makes clear. So that's really what, what this bread that Ezekiel was to eat. It was to represent the siege that was going on in Jerusalem. The recipe of six mixed grains for the Bread indicates the limited and unusual food supply while in bondage in a foreign land. The small amounts of these grains, evidenced by the fact that they had to be thrown together in a mixture to produce a sufficient quantity of meal, vividly picture the sort of short supply of food in a city under siege. Because a city under siege was cut off from outside supplies, the people had to ration their food and water. If it ran out, they would be forced to surrender. In Jerusalem, the people would be allowed uh, daily only a half, a half pound of bread and less than a quart of water. That's how they had to subsist. The proclamation of the prophet. This judgment was to fall not only on Jerusalem, but also on the idolatrous high places in the mountains of Israel. And when it happens, they shall know, there's that phrase again, they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would do this evil to them. Their sin is complete. An end, the end has come upon the four corners of the land. Your doom has come. Injustice has blossomed. Pride has budded come to fruition. The need of Jerusalem's judgment in chapters 8 through 11. Ezekiel was given visions in which he saw the abominable idolatry and violence of Jerusalem. That's chapter 8. He saw God's executioners, angels of judgment, draw near the city and unleash their swords on everyone 
except the remnant who grieved over the abominations of the city. Chapter 9. Then the prophet saw again a vision of the glory of the Lord in the Holy of Holies. Chapter 10. After which the Lord departed from Israel. For the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city. So the glory of the Lord left the temple, left Jerusalem, and for a while it hovered over the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and then it was taken up. So the glory had departed from the temple, God's glory, and Jerusalem was to be destroyed. The judgment on the wicked notwithstanding, God promised Israel, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered. And I will give you the land of Israel and I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. So God would give Israel a change of heart and regather them. Judgment, judgment was needed. The glory had departed, but it would one day return to them the same eastern gate through which it had departed in the person of their king. So just as Ezekiel saw a vision of the glory departing from Jerusalem, he also prophesied later in the book when he gave his prophecies about the millennial kingdom that that glory would return. The nature of God's judgment chapters 12 through 24, God's judgment is sure. As predicted, King Zedekiah will be taken captive to Babylon, the final king of Judah, for the days are at hand and the fulfillment of every vision. God will judge the false prophets whose delusive visions and lying divinations mislead the people to say, peace when there is no peace. We see that same phrase used in the New Testament as well, about peace, peace, when there is no peace. That's always the message of the false prophets, isn't it? Everything is it's going to turn out just fine. We don't have to obey God. It's not necessary to worry about God's requirements. So certain is God's judgment on Israel that even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, three outstanding men of faith, they would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness. We find that in chapter 14. Just as the wood of the vine, wood vine of the forest is given to the fire for fuel, so will I give up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, says the Lord in chapter 15. That's all about that the imagery of the, the vine branches and how the useless, useless branches would be burned up and destroyed. Jerusalem is forcefully described as an abominable harlot. You trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your renown, and lavished your harlotries on any passerby. Israel has broken her vows to God. Chapter 16. 
Yet the Lord says, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish with you an everlasting covenant. And you shall know, once again, you shall know that I am the Lord. And it says the Lord, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish you with you an everlasting covenant. God has judged the king of Judah for treason, yet he will plant again his people in their land, and they will bear fruit. We read about that in chapter 17. What brings God's judgment down is Israel's failure to be righteous. But no one shall suffer for another's sins. The soul that sins, it shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. Remember, Israel, Judah was complaining that they were suffering unfairly for the sins of their fathers. And God was pointing out to them that they were suffering for their own sins. God tenderly calls them to repentance. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, says the Lord. So turn and live. But they do not turn. And Ezekiel is commanded to take up a lamentation for them. Chapter 19. Ezekiel recounts for Israel their long history of rebellion against God. Their blasphemy, idolatry, and profanity, which brings down the judgment of God. Chapter 20. Son of man. There's that expression that's used many times in the book of Ezekiel. When God addresses the prophet Ezekiel, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. And all flesh shall know that I, the Lord, have drawn my sword out of its sheath. sheath. Incidentally, that expression, well, two expressions, actually. The Son of Man, that's the expression that's used most commonly in the Gospels for Jesus. And in the book when in the book of Luke, when Jesus is about to, to go up to Jerusalem at that final time to be crucified, it, it talks about him setting his face to go to Jerusalem. So that's some more imagery and expressions that are used in the New Testament from this book of Ezekiel. Again, the prophet lists their many sins, murder, Contempt for parents, extortion, exploitation of widows, profanity, slander, moral lewdness, sodomy, sexual impurity, adultery, bribery, robbery, and oppression. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. Again, Israel's sin is described as the lewdest form of harlotry, to which God responds, Your lewdness shall be requited upon you, 
and you shall bear the penalty for your sinful idolatry, and you shall know that I am the Lord. See, you can see how often we see that expression. You will know, they shall know that I am the Lord. Because the Lord does not make his prophecies, his predictions in vain. They will come to pass. And you will know, they will know that I am the Lord. The last prophecy of judgment on Jerusalem came the very day of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. Remember how I told you that Ezekiel is very specific about giving you the, the year and the month and the day. So the last prophecy about Jerusalem's destruction right up, to, right up to the end. He's prophesying that Jerusalem will be destroyed. And on that very day that Jerusalem was destroyed, that was the day that Ezekiel's wife died. On that very same day. By this... The people knew that he was the Lord. His glory would not be pun- would not be tarnished, nor his judgment delayed. So the people of, of Judah would know that God was Lord, and that his prophecies, his predictions, would come to pass. All of the prophecies issued by Ezekiel and the other prophets about the destruction of Jerusalem. Next next week we'll look at the latter half of the book. So we'll we'll hear about the the vision of the dry bones and we'll I'll also talk about the remarkable prophecies that Ezekiel issued regarding Tyre. And that's one of the the main prophet, the main proofs that that the Bible really is inspired that it really is the word of God fulfilled prophecy and that's certainly a notable one about Tyre Father in heaven we thank you for this book of Ezekiel we thank you for establishing that each of us is responsible for his own actions his own decisions And we are so grateful that you have opened our hearts and minds so that we can approach you and we can avail ourselves of your kindness and mercy that you have extended to to us. We thank you that you preserved the words of these prophets for us so that we can see their prophecies, their predictions, and we can see how they they were fulfilled and Some of their prophecies will yet be fulfilled in the future. And we know that those prophecies are just as certain, the ones to come, as the ones that have been fulfilled. We thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.